Yeah, I just listened to a show where a, a woman around my age was talking about you know, her early internet use. I've noticed a lot of people focusing on this lately. You know, people are always, of course, looking back at the past. And for many years now, there's been a lot of nostalgia about nostalgia, nostalgia. I can never remember. Fibromyalgia, nostalgia. I can never remember how hard the J is. How hard is the J? But, um, you know, for years, people have been nostalgic about the old internet. I mean, you know, it's just a given. Like, if enough time passes, people will be nostalgic and a certain sort of conservatism develops where there's people who are like, things were better. I mean, you can see where, when I was talking about forums the other day, you can see where, like, I kind of have this conservative mindset in that regard about it, where it's like, well, why can't we just go back to that system where it was chronological and we all had our own niche interest place where we would fight, but at least it was kind of like an infighting thing rather than these big tribes going at it on social media. Or, but anyway, we're not talking about that. I was listening to this woman around my age tell a story about getting on instant messenger on AOL when she was a teenager. And she said like her and her friends made this fake account and they together, they messaged this guy and pretended to be a gay guy and basically just harassed him. And it really upset the guy. Like it wasn't one of those things where like they pretended to be a gay guy and came on to this classmate of theirs online. And then he turned out he was like into it. It wasn't one of those. He was, he was really bothered by it. And she talked about how later she apologized to him. But you could feel the level of embarrassment she had. And she even said as much. She's telling this story and she's like, this is one of the most, she's like, I can't believe I just shared that. Cause she's like, it's one of the most embarrassing things I ever did. It's one of the worst things I ever did. And that's what's so interesting about the internet is when it was introduced, it took people no time, especially kids. Like it took kids no time to start doing things like that. Like just during my time, like I was part of, I would say I was part of the first generation to really just have regular access to the internet. I would say it was my generation for sure. More so than even my sister who was seven years older. Like they had some level of internet maybe right before she graduated high school, but nobody used it. Very few people at least. Um, but I'd say my, my generation was definitely the first to where a lot, of, a lot of my classmates from like popular kids to everybody to weird kids, like everybody was on instant messenger pretty regularly. I think my generation was the first in that regard to just where everyone just sat online and chatted with each other. Uh, but with her story, like it's just funny to me because a number of those incidents played out when I was in school. You heard about them. Maybe you even knew somebody who did it. Maybe you were even involved. You know, there was a time where when I was in high school, there was this kind of party house. Like one of our friends had graduated a couple years ahead of us, and he, he just let us party at his house and hang out because he had his own place. And he would just leave. It's amazing. He would leave his computer on, and it was just a big old, you know, it was like a desktop computer. And he would just leave it on. And, and people were coming and going from his house all the time. And just whoever was there would sit down and just chat with people on his AOL account. He just left his AOL account logged in. And I don't think people abused it as much as you would expect. But there was one night where I think we were drinking. And people would be in all parts of the house just doing their own things. He had roommates. And so we were in the room with the computer. And one of my friends, I will not, this is, I was not the main culprit here. I was really just an observer who didn't stop it and laughed a lot. 
That was my role in this. I've certainly been an instigator, but my friend decided to start messaging this girl who she would regularly come by. Like, she wasn't a good friend of ours, but she was, like, part of this friend group, and she would hang out at the house, too. And another friend of ours had gotten had hooked up with her one night, as they say. He hooked up with her? Did you say he hooked up with her? Oh, hookup culture. Uh, no, but he had this friend of ours, and, like, all of us were, like, virginal. I'm pretty sure all of us were pretty virginal at that point. But we had this one friend who wasn't even, like, a big ladies' man, but he just kind of knew what he was doing. And he'd gotten involved with her one night. They weren't dating or anything. And, like, of course, word spread. Word spread. You know, I wasn't even there, but everybody was talking about it. So-and-so and so-and-so got down in the such-and-such room. (laughs) What's funny is, like, when people gossip about shit like that, like, they they even give you, like, the specific room. They're like, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so did this in this room of the house. And not even in the sense that, like, oh, beware like, be careful what you touch in that room. Like, it wasn't even said in, like, a cautious way. It was as if just that detail, like, the setting was important. Like, the setting was important to the story. That was what was so funny. Cause, and that happened a number of times. You know, it's not like that was going on all the time. I feel like, I don't know. I, I don't know how prudish or how promiscuous most of the kids were, honestly. Um, but when word did spread around you would get a setting. Like there was another friend of mine, like I found out he lost his virginity. I didn't even find out from him. It just kind of made its rounds. And I found out that it happened in the announcer's booth of this baseball, of this like baseball park where they would have youth games. Like you could, you could get inside of the concession stand and you could get inside of the announcer booth. Cause they just, I mean, I guess they weren't worried. You know, it was like a pretty small community really. I guess they weren't worried about people vandalizing it or anything but it was perfect because my friend lost his virginity there and what was amazing is he was this huge baseball fan and he would always go to that baseball park and I'm like that's just his his world in a nutshell losing his virginity in the announcer's booth of the baseball park that he loves to go to like might as well bury him there too just to get the full effect but people would always tell you like the room or the location. It was always funny. Like such and such, so and so did such and such to so and so in his house when his parents were gone. It was always setting was important to those stories about you know kids' escapades. But anyway, like yeah, one night like my friend he just started telling this like like this girl had gotten involved with one of my friends one night. And so my friend who had access to the computer that night, he just starts saying all this shit, like pretending he was this other friend. And he was like, we could do that again. Like it, was, it was pretty bad. And we were all just sitting there drinking and laughing. It was the funniest thing in the world. But she totally nailed it because she knew it wasn't him. Like she knew it wasn't the guy. And she, she said, at one point I remember she said, I bet there's three of you just sitting there laughing. And it's like, you nailed it. How'd you know that there were three? The rule of the the rule of threes, I guess. Threes company. But she knew. She said straight up, I bet there's three of you sitting there laughing. She probably knew exactly who it was. But I'll, I won't take full responsibility for that one. I would say I, I cheer-led that. But I don't think that I was a direct participant. But, I mean, it gets into the whole subject of bullying again. You know, I was talking about bullying in the other episode. And it fits in perfectly, like this idea. Because that would be considered bullying, like the, that girl telling the story on the show about her and her friends pretending to be another guy or just pretending to be a guy. 
and messaging their male classmate, harassing him when they were young. You know, that idea, like that's a prank, but it's also, it crosses the line because there's a, a very close relationship between bullying and pranks. And it, it's like, like basically if you bully somebody in the right way, it's just a prank. But if you prank somebody in the wrong way, it's bullying. And that's, that's such an interesting thing because a lot of it depends on who it is too. Like if you do a prank on your enemy, that's like an act of war. And it, you know, a lot of people don't realize this, but pretty much every war throughout human history started because of a prank. I'm sticking to that story. Every single major war throughout human history basically started because of a prank. And uh, I'm not going to back that up with evidence, just a theory. We're, we're, since we're allowed to believe so many things, I feel like that's a pretty, I don't think that's a, an outrageous claim to make in the world we're living in. That every major war, including the world wars, the world wars, world war one, world war two, you know, they all started because of a big fat prank gone wrong. But that's the risk you run when you prank your enemy. Like pranking your enemy is an insult. It's an act of war. It's an act of escalation. Every once in a while, it's an icebreaker. Every once in a while, like if you prank somebody you hate or you, you prank your, your so-called enemy, sometimes that can actually break the ice because they actually find it funny or it's kind of like an opportunity for everybody to laugh. But it can't be severe. You know, you can't do something too severe. But it's the same thing where it's like, you know, you can prank somebody but cross a line and then it becomes cruel. And that's what I was talking about in the episode the other night where it's like we need to teach people how to bully each other without crossing a line because they're going to bully each other anyway. And even if you make anti-bullying laws, kids are going to find a way to be mean, especially in a highly technological world, and that's exactly what we've seen in recent years. You know, as we've bullied or <laughs> basically bullied, as we've bullied bullying out of our schools, as we've had these big dramatic PR campaigns against bullying, we've seen where more and more of that behavior manifests online. We hear more and more stories about kids anonymously harassing each other, doing what kids did with the internet when they first got it. Cause that's the amazing thing about that girl's story about my experiences is that as soon as kids got the internet, they started abusing it. They, they saw it immediately as an opportunity to harass people, but to do it anonymously and distantly and to not just do that with strangers which they did. People harassed strangers. They bullied strangers. They pranked strangers online. But to also do that with their peers. And sometimes to do it face-to-face. -face. Like, I got in fights with my friends over, like, my real-life friends over Instant Messenger. I remember my friend Robin and I going back and forth. And, like, we were both so stubborn, you know. And, like, who knows? I, I very well might have instigated it. Who knows? Who, who knows who even instigates those things? I don't even think anybody really. You're teenage boys, you know. But it was always good, like with him, it was always good because it was a sparring partner. Like we would get pissed off at each other. And I still remember one time we got in some fight about something on Instant Messenger. And we like, I think it was first period or second period at school. We had a class together where we sat next to each other because we were friends. And so the next morning we had to go in first thing and sit next to each other. And I remember like he he sat down and he was just smiling. And I, I, I feel like as he sat down, he was like, bitch. And I just laughed like it, we, we played it off, you know, it was just because I mean, I think like 
with people like that, with just different people you grew up with, like you end up sparring and sometimes it sucks. Like sometimes it goes too far, you know, it, but I, I feel like with some friends you're able to spar and they're the people too, who don't go tell their parents, you know, that's what all I have to say about my friends is I think sometimes we took it too far. Sometimes I took it too far. I think sometimes we were jerks to each other. Not necessarily any more than the average boy that age, but I do think sometimes we might have tested the limits with each other. Considering you're friends, it's kind of crazy sometimes the things you say and do. But that's also who you feel comfortable doing those things to. And you can recover um, when they do it to you, too. You know, for that matter, it's, a, it's that two-way street. But what I have to say about the majority, all pretty much all of my close friends, is nobody would ever run to their mom. And nobody ever said anything about it. Like, none of our dads were the type of dads who would have told us, like, oh, yeah, if you, if any, if you ever get into a problem, don't go run into your mom. Like, we weren't even coached to do that. And we never said it amongst each other. Like, we never said, hey, guys, if you want to be friends with us, if you want to hang out with us, you can't go run to mom. But it was something we all kind of intuitively knew, and none of us did it. And, you know, while there was kind of like backbitey stuff, for sure, gossip and innuendo about people, I have to say that, like, I appreciate how often things did come to a head. Like, we weren't fighting, we weren't slugging it out. Like, every once in a while, there'd be a little bit of physical stuff, but, you know, we weren't punching each other in the face or anything, just kind of wrestling around and shoving each other and that kind of thing, but it very rarely ever became physical, but things did come to a head. Like we would insult each other. I do remember like, yeah, just a little bit of physical violence, nothing serious. It usually stopped pretty quickly if things got that far, but I do look back on that. And at the time you'd be at the time, you're not thinking of it as like, Oh, I'm just sparring. This is a part of my evolution as a human being that I need to test the boundaries and fight with my friends. And sometimes even, fight with strangers and you know all of that and I'm not saying like life back then you're just going around doing that all the time but pretty much everybody had a chip on their shoulder so it was possible at any given moment it was possible and people would make they would make fun of each other so so they were testing the psychological limits they were testing just every limit they could and specifically with their peers and that's the interesting thing we're going to be seeing like you know as anti-bullying has been in full swing now for many years and it's gotten a lot of publicity a lot of very one-dimensional publicity I should say too you know we're seeing where people have turned into just these monsters online anonymously but not even anonymously because the whole argument that people used to make on the early internet was oh you're just saying that because you're anonymous you're just saying that oh you're just hiding behind a screen name thinking you're tough, but you're really just a keyboard warrior. And you know they used to use the term uh, telephone warrior? I found that out. I heard that uh, actually from that former mob guy that I talked to. He he said that like they used to refer to some guys as like, I think telephone tough guys is what they used to say, like guys who would talk tough on the phone but never in person. Just kind of amazing that like with the technology, because I never even really thought about that. You know, obviously I grew up with phones all around and you talk on the phone all the time, but I never really thought about like the idea of like, oh yeah, somebody's a telephone tough guy. And then that mob guy mentioned it and I was like, oh yeah, like that's like a keyboard warrior. Of course, each phase of technology has its own version of that, but you would hear keyboard warrior and things like that. And, you know, that's kind of what we've created though. 
But the difference is people used to always say like, oh, you can be a tough keyboard warrior because you're uh, you're hiding behind a screen name. But now we see where like even people under their own names with their own profile photos are the same way. Even when you remove anonymity, I think the only real significance that anonymity plays when it comes to expressing yourself online today is where your politics are. Because we've seen where you can get away with outrageous stuff if your politics line up with the corporations, with certain branches of our government, with the institutions, whereas you could say the same exact things, but if it can be contextualized as politically inconvenient, we see where it gets shut down. But yeah, people, anonymity really played little role in the nastiness, it turns out. Like, we can see that now. And that's what I was going to get at, too, though, is that a lot of people have been kind of nostalgic about those years for a long time. But I'm now just seeing a lot more critical thinking. I think now that we're look that many of us have been online now for over 20 years, some of the younger generations specifically who grew up with this. Like, when I say that my generation, I hear Batty kind of puking one sec. I'm going to take this off the stand. But like, given my generation was the first to like be on instant messenger every night to, to regularly use like the first incarnations of social media. Hey, Batty. Yeah, he's fine. Now I'm just holding a mic like a, like an idiot, like a, like an MC. Um, but anyway, like since I think, you know, while other people have been able to comment too, like other people have been able to like kind of look back on earlier, evo- just the evolution of, of modern technology and specifically the internet, you know, I think my generation does have a unique vantage point given we were really the first ones to delve into this and our parents weren't doing it. Our older siblings weren't doing it. We were just a different, I mean, there's a clear distinction between the way that my generation began using the internet and everybody before it or even the people younger so I think it's interesting that people are now able to look critically at some of these things but you know I'm coming from the point of view here with like I'm just it's interesting the way that it influenced pranking and bullying and like bullying like pranks are necessary I mean pranks are very necessary when I look back at growing up I'm like what would I have been without pranking you know, prank phone calls being a good example, because that was one of the clear transitions is, you know, we made prank phone calls. I think that I first started making prank calls. I must have been nine or 10. I was pretty young. I would say about 10. And then I really got into full swing around probably 11, 12, probably continued. Basically, there was this, this sharp drop off where as soon as people either got caller ID when most people started getting caller ID or when they started to learn those little tricks that you could do star 69 and find out who called you as soon as that started happening. And then too, like the increase in cell phones, just all of that played a role, but then also the internet taking more and more prominence, more and more people communicating online. So you can see where like technology made prank calls very difficult, if not impossible. And then the internet just took its place where you could prank people, but it was never as satisfying. Because the thing about a prank phone call, I mean, really, I can trace this show back to prank phone calls when I was a kid. And that's not really much of an exaggeration, because when I look back, that was the first time that I tried doing weird voices. It was improv like this. I mean, this show is improv. If you want to, I don't know, it's a performance that I'm making up as I go along. And that's how prank phone calls were like you were on the spot. 
Like you were on a microphone essentially because your friends are watching you or listening because I didn't do them alone. I, I, I made a comment about that a little while back where if you do pranks alone, where you're the only one doing it and you're the only audience, it's a prank that only you know about. You're basically a couple steps away from serial murder. You are a psycho if you're doing that. And everybody's done that like once or twice, but you need to do it once or twice to know that it feels wrong and dark. Even if it's a harmless prank, pranks have no value if you're doing them for yourself only, for your own amusement only. You're either doing it to get back at somebody, which is different. Like if you're retaliating, if you're retaliating against something a roommate did, that's a little different. It's still sick, but it's a little different. But if you're just bored and you're doing pranks for your own amusement and the Internet allowed that, like the Internet allowed a lot more people to be sick by themselves but you did have kids crowding around the computer, like my experience, like that girl's experience. You did have that where they would crowd around and you would all kind of play the game of messing with somebody. But with prank calls in particular, yeah, what was special about prank calls, though, is you were on the spot. Like you got to see who knew how to work and who didn't. You got to see like who could work under pressure. And you said stupid shit, of course, but still, even just the ability to do that, because like some kids would get on a prank phone call and they would just be like, uh, um, and then they'd hang up. They didn't know what they were doing and the, the pressure killed them, crumpled them up. But even if you were saying really stupid shit, I'm not saying you had to be like some ultra funny comedian, but just the ability to like riff on your feet. And my friends and I discovered this was perfect. It was a match made in heaven. We would stay up watching infomercials, and a lot of them were for psychics, also for the party line. We never called the party line. If you're not familiar, the party line was a, a number you could call, and you'd just end up on a line, like a group line, with a bunch of other people who called, and it's all adults. Like, there's obviously kind of like a sexual, or I imagine it's just drunk people, lonely drunk people, but they would have like hot babes in the advertisement. But that was, we never called that because that wasn't an 800 number. I think that was a, you knew, like, like the thing about the party line is they didn't try to pretend they, they weren't going to take your money. Like, you know, right away that if you call the party line, the meter starts running the second you dial that number. Whereas with the psychic hotlines, they would give you an 800 number and they still charged you, but you would call the 800 number and then you would talk to a representative, kind of like a, kind of a receptionist type person who would ask you a bunch of questions like your name, how your day is going. They're obviously fishing for info. Like they're obviously, as much as I do believe in psychic phenomena and that sometimes people highly attuned to that choose carny roles like that of a, a psychic hotline, you know, person or, or somebody who works at fairs doing readings, you know, sometimes that people who are actually highly attuned, very intuitive people take on those jobs because it's easy money it's not ethical sure but what is you think being a licensed doctor is 100 percent ethical um but you know and then sometimes they're just scam artists sometimes they're just you know this or that but sometimes highly intuitive people who you might even call psychics like that sort of friend you have where you're like you're, you're psychic dude you're psychic like they might take on the job of a you know basically a carny or a hotline operator because they do have a certain ability, but you got to make a living. 
And so you, you have a, you gotta have a, a, a racket or a scam, you know, but anyway, the way these rackets work, cause that's what they were, of course. No, no, no. The psychic hotline was totally legitimate, dude. It's totally fair. The second I start saying that is when you know that I'm working for one, which maybe I should, but anyway, um, you call this 800 number, they would basically do a brief interview with you. And then the idea is that they would patch you over to the 900 number where you actually talk to the psychic and then they would obviously begin charging you at that point. But it was an interesting system they had. I don't know how we figured it out. I guess we were just watching TV and, you know, being these, you know, a, you know, attentive little animals. We were like, oh, that one has an 800 number. Let's call it and see what happens. It's funny to think we did that, though, because it's like, you know, again, this is before the Internet. There's no there was no information going around telling us like, oh, you you know that if you call the psychic hotlines, you can talk to this receptionist for free and you can fuck with them. Like we just figured that out on, on our own because that's what you do when you're staying up all night and you're 12 years old. You call that number. And so we talked to those people. And of course, you know, we wouldn't let them patch us over to the psychic. You know, we wouldn't. So we could talk to another human being in the middle of the night for free and we could say whatever we wanted to them because they're work, they're, they're receptionists. They're like secretaries for the psychic hotline. And so looking back, like that's what I would do accents and stuff. Like I remember doing a really terrible Southern accent and who knows what they heard on the other end. Like, I guess I was either going through puberty or had gone through puberty. I have to imagine I sounded like a kid. Like, even if my voice had dropped by that point, I have to imagine they knew that that was a kid. But I did this screwed up, like, southern accent. And I, I remember doing some other voices, too, like a very serious voice, like a parent voice, like like something that a dad or a mom would use. I just remember doing different voices, like trying to give off certain effects and just saying weird stuff to see what sticks. Like, there was one time where I remember, like, I, I was talking to the, the operator and they said something, and I was like, oh, that reminds me of my cat. She's dead now, but she was a sweet cat. She was a sweet cat. Just saying that, like, she was a sweet cat. And then uh, another time, too, being like, oh, yeah, you know, that made me blue, that made me blow chunks. Which is disgusting. Like, I, I, don't, I don't ever use that phrase normally, but it just came to my head. Because that's the thing. You're improvising with this person on the line the spotlights on you, your friends are watching. And so whatever comes into your head is what you say. And I was like, Oh yeah, you know, that almost made me, I, I almost blew chunks. And then I, and then I go, you know what blue chunks is? I still remember that one. Cause of that, that line, you know what blue chunks is? Cause when I said that, it's like, I, it, it sounded like I was, it didn't, it no longer sounded like I was talking about puking. It sounded like I was talking about something like the color blue blue chunks like I felt like that's what I was asking this poor person this poor guy I don't I don't remember who it was but yeah sometimes it would be a guy sometimes it would be a woman sometimes they would kind of snicker like they knew kind of what you were doing you know they never got upset by it I'm sure it just honestly I'm sure that was the best part of their job like getting random prank calls from kids was probably the best part of being a an operator at a psychic hotline because you know what else are you going to get like people who are calling in earnest you know, I bet that wouldn't be a bad job at all, actually, now that I think about it. 
Because like how much? Because if someone's mad at you, if someone's in a bad mood, that would just make it better. Like this is a person calling a psychic hotline who's in a bad mood. That itself is like the setup for a joke. But yeah, it was that experience where you're like you're making prank phone calls, and as soon as you hear that ringing, you got to do it. And so it's what I've talked about before, where it's like so many things you do as a kid, you're kind of testing each other and you're kind of showing what you can do. And not like you're going to become the champion prank caller, but just like, hey, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to put myself literally on the line, on the phone line. And we would call classmates because the <laughs> I feel like they almost set things up for this because they would give everybody at my elementary school, they would give out phone books. They would give every kid and like their parents this little phone book that had a phone number for every single kid in the school. And it listed their parents' names. And I think I'm trying to remember if it listed the faculty's phone numbers. I feel like they might have been smart enough not to do that. But it listed every single kid's phone number. It was insane. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to call those. But it's kind of amazing to think about now, like kids calling, like not to prank each other, but just to call each other, because that would happen too. like girls would call, like, you know, things like that, where you if you had that book, if you had that elementary school phone book, you could call anybody in your school. And sometimes kids did that, you know, even unexpectedly, like sometimes you'd get a call from an unexpected kid, which is really funny, like that kid wanted to call me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, but then, uh, you know, of course, like that's, it's like, that's designed for pranking. That's like, you know, a, a prankster's dream, a book with all your classmates numbers. So we would call people and prank them. This is before star 69 and caller ID. So you could get away with a lot. And we called this one kid's house repeatedly. I feel like I might've told this story, but it's worth telling on this episode where we called this one kid, his name was Tom Kelly. And he, you know, I mentioned on a recent episode how like there was always, there was like this humping trend where like kids would hump things and they didn't even know what they were doing. It was, and it wasn't like the movie TV humps that you would see guys do. It wasn't like when you, you would see like, it's not like when you would watch American Pie or, you know, any number of teen movies from the late nineties or early two thousands. And there was always a guy doing like a humping maneuver that was like very well rehearsed. It wasn't like that. Cause nobody really knew what they were doing. So this kid, he ran around humping things and kids would say like, Tom, go hump that Tom, go, go do this. And so he got kind of, he got a reputation as a kid. Like he would do things like he jumped off the bridge in the woods, like directly into the mud after school. I watched him do it. To be honest, I think I kind of either nudged him or convinced him to do it. I think I had a role in that for sure. And he jumped off the bridge or fell off the bridge. I don't know. I, I plead the fifth. And he landed down in the mud, like crouched. Like he landed in the mud like he was a frog who belonged there. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Because he's down there for a minute and it looks like his face is buried in the mud. It was a, a creek, but it was a very muddy creek. And he fell from pretty high up. Like not probably today I'd look down at it and be like, that's a foot. But to little kids, it's a lot. And his face, he looks up at me and his entire face is covered in mud like blackface. And he just has the biggest smile on his face. And he gets up and he does it again and again and again, just jumping in the mud each time. So he was the type, I don't, you know, he wouldn't even say he had ADD or anything. 
it was just he was this kid who he was just reckless and he would do things. And so we were like, let's call his house. And he lived near the school, so his house, he had a weird life, because his house was right by the school, and his, his whole family was basically on display. And, it, like, I think they, I, you know, I think they were lower on the economic spectrum, and I, it just seemed like, and there were a bunch of kids, it was just, it just seemed like a big mess. But, like, we were never, I don't remember ever being mean to him. I don't think anybody was mean to him. They just kind of encouraged him to be that freak. And it, that was what Jeffrey Dahmer was in school, it turns out. Like, Jeffrey Dahmer was the kid who they would tell him to do the Dahmer, and he would flop onto the ground and, like, basically pretend to have a seizure. Like, the sort of kid who does something, like, pretends to have a seizure for attention. Like, I could easily have imagined this kid, Tom, being that kid. Like, he well, he was that kid. But I could easily see him, like, doing the Dahmer and pretending to have a seizure while everybody laughed. You know, he was that sort of kid. So we pranked his house. Like, we were never mean to him, but we pranked his house. And we called repeatedly. My friend and I called repeatedly. And we just kept talking to his mom. And who knows what we said. I think it just got more and more absurd. But we called again and again. I think it was like a Saturday afternoon. And then finally she answered the phone. And before we could even say anything, she goes, Are you having fun? But there was like a, you know, she wasn't out of her mind angry or anything. You could tell, like, the, the vibe that she gave off was that she was kind of annoyed, but also kind of amused. Because we weren't saying anything bad. You know, we weren't saying anything threatening or mean or anything. We were just, I don't even know what we said. But we just kept, we were probably dying of laughter. And then that was just, that sealed the deal. That was like the climax. Like, her just answering the phone. Are you having fun? With that sort of inflection, that sort of tone. And like we, we, I don't even think we could have said anything if we wanted. We were dying. I think I died that day. I think that I died on that day and that I've just been a ghost wandering the earth ever since. Seriously. I think I was in third grade or so. That was a pretty early one. That was even fairly early in my prank calling career. An early highlight. But no, I think I might have died that day. It was, we, we thought it was so funny that she answered the phone that way. And we didn't call after that. You know, we, that we stopped. We knew we couldn't beat that. Somehow we knew that we had to just end that one. But sometimes you could go too far, you know, because you'll hear these stories about people like actual bullying where kids just like a kid will just tell another kid, kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. Why don't you kill yourself? And a mom even did that. Like there was that story that was big in the news a few years ago about how there was a mom who pretended, I think she pretended to be a teenage boy on the internet and seduced one of her daughter's teenage friends and then ended up like dumping her or something. Like I think they developed some sort of online relationship and then she dumped the girl and like told her to kill herself. I don't remember if the girl killed herself, but it was this thing where the mom was doing that. The mom was pretending to be like an attractive teenage boy and just devastated her daughter's friend like think about that and like think about that that probably goes on and and nobody ever finds out that's just the one that hit the news who knows like did she hate that girl probably not it was probably just something fucked up she thought to do who knows but um you know things can always go too far and like like you know when i hear stories like that when it's somebody just telling another kid, kill yourself. Why don't you kill yourself? You're ugly and nobody loves you. I never said things like that to people. 
Like I did cross the line sometimes and I'll get to that. But I, that, that to me is obvious. Like there's no excuse for that. Like that is just straight up cruelty. That is crossing the line. When I say that it's not about eradicating bullying, so-called bullying, it's figuring out what the line is and telling people not to cross it. And they will inevitably, but if you make it clear that that's the line that you cannot cross, and if you cross it, there will be a severe punishment in addition to the horrible impact that it's going to have. I feel like that's going to be more useful than just saying kids can't be mean to each other. Well, good luck with that, because look, they're getting online. They're making secret accounts. And at least with phones, because what I will say about prank calls, because you, you, you would hear about people crossing the line then. You would hear, hear about people saying horrible things. And I guess that's just a good time to tell this story where I must have been in fifth or sixth grade. It, would have have, it had to have been like around 1997 or 1998 because Scream had just come out the movie Scream, and my friends and I were all obsessed with it, and we would go around quoting it, especially the, the beginning where the guy's talking through the voice. I guess he's talking through a voice. Uh, I don't know what that is, like a a voice manipulator. But when he calls Drew Barrymore and, and that whole thing, like we would repeat those lines because it's iconic. And so we were all obsessed with Scream. I mean, everybody was like pretty much every kid because it was it was a good movie for kids. It was like a good horror movie for kids where it was bloody. You know, it was hip, but it really wasn't that bad. It almost felt like it was designed for for kids who just hit puberty. So anyway, we were obsessed with it, though, and we found out that this girl we knew and we didn't even have any problems with her or anything. Not at that time. And uh, we found out this girl, though, was going to be babysitting my friend's little brother. And nobody else was going to be there. So another friend and I were like, let's prank call her. Because you, you look for opportunity. It's like, here's an opportunity. And so we did exactly that. Like, and, you know, and we just we were quoting Scream. Like, I think I'm sure at some point I said, like, if you hang up on me, I'm going to gut you like a fish. That famous line. Hi. Is Sydney there? You know, whatever it is. You know, I think we were just quoting Scream. It was probably incredibly embarrassing to me today. Like, whatever we said was probably so stupid. In addition to just quoting a movie, whatever it was was so stupid. But I think because we were, you know, not to justify it or anything, because really, we called a girl who was still very young, like, you know, she was still very young to be babysitting by herself. It was probably early on in her babysitting career. And she's in this house that she, I don't think she'd ever babysat for them before. You know, I don't think so. And uh, so she's in this like new house. She's in this house she's never been to babysitting this kid at night. And she's getting these calls. I totally understand that we crossed a line. And then on top of that, we're quoting a horror movie where we're talking about violence. You know, it's, it wasn't cool. I regret doing that. I had to do it, though. <laughs> I had to. I had to do it so that I could talk about it now. And, and also to realize that I crossed the line. Because the thing is, they found out somehow. They found out somehow that it was coming from my house or that it, we were doing it. Somehow she figured it out. Or you know what? I think we might even have eventually told her. I think that like on the last call that we had, because I think we called her maybe like three times 
And on the last call, I think that we just told her who it was or something like, cause it wasn't, we, we honestly, we weren't trying to harass her or it wasn't mean spirited. I don't, I don't think like, I don't remember having any, any malice to her. It was a prank, but it just shows you that like a prank can easily cross the line. Cause we were saying scary things over the phone to a girl who was alone babysitting, you know, like there was nothing sexual. We were very young, you know, it's just, just quoting scream pretty much. But I remember like somehow like they found out and like my friend and I were alone at my house and somehow his parents got alerted and his dad just showed up at our house. And I still remember seeing him storm up the walk. Like we had a walkway up to the door and I remember seeing his dad like move with just a fury. And he was one of his, his dad was one of those dads too, who would totally get into high pitched dad anger, the wraith like high pitched anger dad voice where it's like he doesn't even care about signaling his masculinity with a low like what what are you doing what's up you know he wasn't even trying to do that like dads they've already had sex dads have already had sex and everybody knows it because they have children so like certain dads especially in the suburbs they've reached a point where like they don't care about like signaling their bassy voice like an ape and they just will scream at you like a wraith And so this was one of those types of dads. And I just remember seeing him move with a fury. And I was just like, I just hid in the bathroom. I just went in the bathroom. I locked the door. I heard like a a brief moment of like wraith, not a scream, but just like a, a, a wraith like command. And I heard the door, the front door close and they were gone. Like his dad just came and like ripped him out of my house and took him home. And we got a, we didn't get in serious trouble. We got, we just got like a talking to, you know, we just got a talking to, that was it. Cause really, I don't think that it was, and I don't think it needed more than that. Like I was embarrassed. My friend was clearly embarrassed. His rate, his dad reached that wraith like anger and just got him and we're taking you home. But, you know, that was a moment where I was like, yeah, we crossed a line there. And I, there were many stories throughout school you'd hear about different things happening. But the Internet added a whole new dimension to it. The Internet had added this whole new dimension because that's when you really start to see girls get involved. Because girls weren't big prank phone callers. Like, they did it a little bit. But, like, I saw, like, like my sister and her friends, they were, like, you know, they they were rebels. They liked to cause a little bit of trouble in their own way, like... You know, but they didn't do prank calls like that. If they did, it was just to like mess with a boy they liked in a very minor way or just to kind of like contact him anonymously. But it wasn't a prank. Whereas like men and boys, we just prank. And like somebody could make the argument that like, oh, that's because like men are conditioned for that risk taking behavior and girls are told to just be nice. And not cause problems. That's why girls aren't pranksters. No, that's not true. And we can see that with the internet. Where once girls had access to the internet, they started doing that shit. They started making anonymous accounts and like met like that happened in my school. You know, I I would hear stories from the girls about like cattiness going on online, girls gossiping girls making fake accounts and guys did it too and I I do wonder though like because I remember like a certain amount of gossip I remember a certain about amount of like reputation destroying among groups of male friends 
And that, that includes like football players I knew, it includes skateboarders, it includes gamers, like pretty much any category of kid, any general category of kid I knew. They all, even if they were men, they were gossiping too. And that includes like my adult friends, like my men, like, like my male friends as an adult gossip all the time. But I wonder how much of that too, though, is the product of not being able to get that out face to face. Because I started to notice more of that, not until like any kind of like physicality, you know, like as, as soon as like physicality started to being started being discouraged, that's when I feel like I started to notice kind of this more insidious, like back room behind your back sort of stuff. Because I think kids do have a need to get that out. I think they do have a need to kind of plot against each other and scheme and be mean. But when you make it almost impossible for them to do that face to face, which my friends and I would do, like we would call each other names, we would do things like not in a bro way, kind of a smart way, if I dare say so. You know, we had kind of smart ways of we knew the pressure points. That's what I'll say is like my friends and I, we all knew the exact pressure points and we could apply them very subtly. But you think about like the way that people are today, where it's almost all behind the scenes or if it is out front, it's online. It's some sort of call out. It's some sort of online attack. And I just do, I I do wonder like how much of that is from like not being able to act that out as much in person. Like, not that I'm, you know, because I don't go online and attack people. I can promise you that. (laughs) I, I don't go online, haven't for a very, very long time. I haven't gone online and just attacked people. I can't imagine doing that. But, you know, I also think I get a lot of my aggression out in other ways. And so that's part of it, too, is less and less people getting their aggression out in other ways. So that's going to manifest online. But what's so interesting to me, though, is just how it, it happened immediately. As soon as kids had access to the Internet, they were doing that. They were bullying. They were pranking. Sometimes it was hard to tell which one, because I think that's a different dimension. Like prank phone calls, you had to call like it took balls. It took it took something not to just to make the phone call and go through with it, because, you know, that's another thing some kids would do is they'd like dial the number and then it would ring once and they would hang up because they were so afraid. You really learn a lot about your friends that way. Like who's willing to do this? I mentioned before that that was the same for sneaking out. Or anything, really. Anything you were doing without your parents' approval. It was very interesting to see who was comfortable with that and who wasn't. And I was pretty, you know, it was rare that I was the instigator, honestly. Like, I wouldn't say I was typically the instigator. But I was more than willing to do all that. Like, sneaking out was fun. That was the funnest part of a sleepover. Like, what, you think, like, when you're 12 and 13 years old, do you think you really find that much enjoyment? Just, like... Yeah, we're all hanging out in our sleeping bags, watching movies. You know, it's like, do you really think that's what young boys want to do? No, like we're waiting until the parents go to bed and then we're going to like, you know, grab a Pepsi. We used to do that. We used to each take a Pepsi on the road with us and we wouldn't go far. You know, it's not like we'd wander. We'd go to like if there was a park nearby. We'd go there. We'd just kind of sneak around outside go a few blocks at the most, really. We wouldn't go that far. But we'd, like, sneak a Pepsi out with us so we had, like, a some fuel. <laughs> and, uh, 
but you'd always like notice who was uncomfortable with that. And you know, same with prank calls, like you could always tell who was kind of uncomfortable. And then it goes back to the telling your mom thing as well. Cause sometimes a kid would tell his mom about a prank. Like when I was in the play Greece in seventh grade, there was this kid, he was in the play too. I considered him kind of a friend. He wasn't one of my good friends. My mom used to call him the the little mayor of Kirkland because he was one of those kids who everybody liked. He was just this little guy who everybody liked. Very, very friendly, very nice. You wouldn't have a bad word to say about him. But I learned you couldn't trust him either because, at least not when it came to, like, guy stuff, because he, uh, like, we were doing the play and, like, one of the one of the guys, like, playing, like, there's, there's a character in Greece who's, there's a scene where he's mooning people. He's out on the town and he's, like, pulling his pants down and mooning people. And, of course, because we're doing a junior high play in, like, 1998, they're not going to let us actually moon people. And I wouldn't have wanted to. You know, I was, like, this fat little kid. I, I would not have wanted to pull my pants down in front of an audience then or now. I wouldn't want to do that now either. But the guy doing that role, the guy playing the character, I think his name's Duty. I want to say it's Duty, uh, one of the greasers. Like, that guy, like, had a plan where he's, like, well, he, he, first of all, he asked the director, he was like, can we get like one of those fake party butts? You know, can we get one of those fake butts from the party store so that I can like actually sh- moon? And they were like, no. And so he came up with this plot and this is amazing, you know, like without the director and, and anybody else knowing he got the greasers together. And I was, I was like a random greaser that was only in the play. My name was Bobby, but I, I was not a character in the movie as far as I know. I was just like this random character in the play, but I got to be a greaser, thank, thankfully. Played a greaser twice in school plays, but uh, one of them was as a, uh, the trial of the Big Bad Wolf, which is 50s themed. I played one of the spectators, but from the wolf gang. So yeah, and we were greasers. The wolf is a greaser. He's basically the Fonz. And he, his spectators, like his supporters in the in in the spectator section, or greaser wolves. I was a, I was a, I got to play a greaser wolf. We didn't dress up like it. We just dressed like greasers. We didn't dress like wolves, but we were greaser wolves. Wolves. Where I'm a greaser wolf. I, sh- I should start a rockabilly band, you know. But this other one though, where I played this random greaser, like this guy. He got everybody together secretly. And he was like, you know. Don't tell anybody, but when we do the actual play, like we're not going to do it in practice. We're not going to do it during rehearsal, but when we do the actual performance in front of the audience, we're going to actually moon the crowd like with our real butts. And, you know, I was going to go along with it, though. That's the thing. It's like I was like, you know, if if this is what we're going to do, we're going to do it as a team. I wasn't comfortable with it. The last thing I want to do is pull my freaking pants down. But that was a good plan. Like, that was a funny, it was a prank. And just that, like, just performing in this play wasn't enough. And that's the greaser thing to do, too. Like, when you think about the fact that we're playing greasers in this play, that's a greaser thing to do is to, like, get get all the guys together and to be like, hey, we're going to actually moon the crowd instead of just pretending. But guess what? This little kid, the, the little mayor of Kirkland, nice kid, he went straight to his mom and his mom was like one of these ladies who was really nice, but she was like way too involved in the school, like way too involved in like the kid's business. 
very proper about that stuff, like a PTA mom, that type of thing. So guess what? Like he tells his mom and she's like, oh, no. Oh, no. You know, like like I can't even imagine getting upset about that. But it's like she went and she told the school or told the production, told the director. And they they called us to a meeting, which is I I wish I had this on tape. I wish I had this on tape so badly. They, They brought us together, the director, and she was an Australian woman. Really hot now that I think about it. Like at the time she was, she, you know, at the time it was like she was really intense because she's like this, this musical director from Australia. But when I, when I look back and she had like really big teeth, like really big horse teeth. But that just like my memory of her now, I'm just like she was smoking. Kind of like kind of like a darker complexion, but still white and like dark hair. Yeah, she was looking back. I'm like, man. I got to have this hot Australian woman sit me down, me and my greaser friends down. And she was like, I heard what you guys were planning to do. I heard what you were planning to do. That you were planning on mooning the crowd during the live performance. And we all just stayed quiet. We didn't snitch. But we found out who did. Like, I don't think we admitted it even, I, or I think, I think like we left it up to the guy whose idea it was. And he, he honestly, he handled it like a man. He, none of us like caved in. We just kind of like basically gave the minimum affirmation that we wouldn't do it. And we didn't because at that point, because she even said like, I think we, we were threatened with serious trouble, like suspension or something. Like it would be a problem, like a sex crime almost. And so we didn't do it, but I wish I could have a freaking camera. I wish there was a camera in that room recording that meeting because I think it was the music room too. I recall it being a small private room where they sat us down and this group of like seven or eight greasers just getting lectured. And the cool thing about that too is all the guys who played greasers in that play, pretty much every single one of us almost was kind of a prankster, kind of a troublemaker actually. Like, even the guy who played Danny Zuko, he was not, like, a theater kid. He was this random Italian kid who, like, used to sell drugs. It's perfect. And uh, he he couldn't sing or anything, but he was the perfect Danny Zuko. Yeah, they were all, like, pretty much everybody who who played a greaser in that play was, like, I think everybody was qualified in their own life. Like, whatever modern equivalent of of being a greaser is, I think everybody kind of fit the role, but... Some other funny stuff happened with that too, where, oh, and it was the same kid who snitched. It's, it's the same kid every freaking time. See, that's how you know, that's a pattern. Because when we were doing our final rehearsal before we actually did the play, they had all the boys, they, they made a makeshift dressing room in this one, like a choir room. And then they had the girls doing it in another choir room, like an adjoining choir room. And they weren't connected, but there was this little room in between them that had glass windows on each side. And it was tiny. It was like a little, no, what it was, it was the office of like the music teacher. But there was no music teacher in there because it was after school. So there was like this little office in between these two choir rooms that kind of connected them. And there was a window on each side so that if you were in that office, you could see into each choir room. And so if you were in one of the choir rooms and you look through that window, you could also see into the other choir room. So you can imagine what I'm getting at here. The boys discovered that we could see into the girls changing room and we saw them in their underwear. (laughs) 
And uh, sure enough, though, and it's not like we were all just hanging out there because they would have eventually seen us. But that same kid, the little mayor, went to his mom again and told her, or he went to somebody. Who knows? He'll go to anybody. But he went to somebody and told them that we could see in there. And he wasn't gay. You know, it was just, he was just very proper. He was very like by the book and not a Christian kid either though. He was like, he was like a popular social kid. He wasn't religious or anything like that. It was just like, he just knew that it wasn't right. And he decided to go tell on us. And I, I certainly wasn't the instigator as, as far as this, this moment of voyeurism that we had. But what's so funny is they didn't even notice like when they assign those rooms, it's so funny to me that they didn't even know that. Although it makes you think, I'm like, hmm, did did that lady, did that beautiful Australian lady with her hot buck teeth, her not buck teeth, horse teeth, there's a difference, with her beautiful horse teeth, did she somehow know, did she somehow set that up? But because that little kid snitched, she had to be like, okay, I got to do something about this. Like, I wonder if she somehow knew. But then that kid too, like I went to a birthday party with that kid and you really learn, like, again, this is a pattern of behavior where it was a paintball birthday. This kid had a a paintball. We went to a paintball facility and he and I were on the same team and it was terrifying. You're in this really dark warehouse. There's this like this castle structure built out of plywood that has a maze on the inside. Every single surface in that entire warehouse is covered in this slimy paintball paint. It's like this oily, slimy paint on everything because everything's been shot and they don't clean it. And you're playing with adults and people you don't know. And a bunch of them are kids that I know because it's this kid's birthday party. But I ended up on the same team as the little mayor. And honestly, it's terrifying. It hurts. Even if you're wearing a sweatshirt, you're wearing a mask, it still hurts to get hit with a paintball, especially when you're 12, 13 years old. But this little kid, like he, and he's my age, but he's just, he's small. He he and I end up the last surviving members of our team during one of the games, and we got stuck behind this corner piece in one of the corners of the warehouse. So it's like basically like a right angle corner piece, and we're hiding behind it, and we have to peep our heads and guns out on each side and shoot at the enemy. And there's tons of them left. Like our team got almost entirely wiped out. We're the last two guys left. But the other team has a bunch of guys, at least five. Like they, they have like five, maybe six, maybe a hundred. No, but they have significantly more people than we do. So they're just like shooting paintballs in our direction. And we just, there's nowhere for us to go. We're, we've been completely cornered. And it was stressful. I mean, you can imagine what that must be like in real life. You can imagine what that must be like in battle, real battle, like in a trench or something, because it felt like that. It was like me and this kid are the me and the little mayor are the last two survivors. All we can do is just stick our heads out and hope for the best and shoot and hope for the best. And this this kid, though, like we're, we do a little bit of that, like we do a little bit of shooting back and forth. And then all of a sudden I see this kid because like we basically become partners. We basically become life partners, literally life partners. Our life depends on this for us to stay in the game. And like, yeah, we're probably going to lose. They have us outnumbered and cornered. We're probably going to lose. But wouldn't it be cool to do our best to make this like, what if we don't lose? What if we somehow snipe these guys? 
Like, what if we somehow don't lose? <laughs> but sure enough, like after a couple minutes of this back and forth, high, high stress. It was so stressful. Honestly, like I look back at playing paintball and even laser tag and just different games like that. And I'm like, that moment was the most stress I've ever experienced in any kind of game like that, including football, including anything. Cause it was like, it truly felt like we were in war and it was going to hurt. Like we knew it was going to hurt. Because every time a paintball hits you and you have five guys like ready to shoot a barrage at you, you could get hit with a bunch of paintballs and they would leave a bruise and everything. And I look over, though, and the little mayor out of nowhere, he just because because when you were shot, like because the rule was if a paintball hits you, but it doesn't burst, you can still play. But if a paintball hits you and it bursts and the judge sees that, like the judge can see that a paintball bursts on you because they have a referee judge guy who he wanders around and uh, so basically, if a paintball bursts, you're out. But this kid that I'm with, you know, my life partner, the mayor, he suddenly just he's not even he hadn't even stuck his head around the corner in a minute. He was just like like holding his ground. All of a sudden, he just puts up his hands as if he got shot. And he just walks away with his hands up. And he had not been shot. He gave up. This is the same kid who snitched about the mooning. This is the same kid who snitched about being able to see into the girl's dressing room. And I watched him when it was just me and him cornered, fighting for our lives against the enemy. He put his hands up and pretended to get shot so that he didn't have to deal with actually getting shot or didn't actually have to go through this final stand. And at that point, I think I just kind of, I just started shooting at the enemy and they got me. But it's interesting that that's the same kid. And that kind of like relates to the pranking thing. Like I'm talking about like sneaking out where it's like pranking is a way of proving yourself just like that stuff is. And like it it makes sense that he snitched about a prank, the mooning. He snitched about, you know, seeing in the girl's dressing room, which was not like, you know, it, it wasn't even that interesting. It was just the sheer novelty of being able to do it. I don't even think they got naked or anything. It was just, I think we saw a girl in her bra and panties. You know, yeah, it's, it's, it, we shouldn't have done it. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. We weren't being incredibly lecherous. They, I mean, just think about it. They put a bunch of teenage boys into a room that had a window that could see into a room with a bunch of girls undressing. What do you think we are monks? What do you think we are saints? You know, it's just, Nobody should ever, and nobody did get in trouble for that. It was just what happened. You know, shame on us for looking, I guess. But that kid snitched us out for that. It's kind of, it's not a prank, but it's, I feel like that's kind of in the same territory. It's like classic, like, ooh, hey, they, they literally gave us a window into the girl's changing room. Are we just going to ignore that, you know? I feel like it's all the same. Like, men and boys test each other, and that's so important, but they do it through things like pranking, through things like bullying. And yeah, it can get out of hand. You know, it can get very out of hand. Like when when you have people start telling each other to to kill each other, there's cruelty. But it's like we need to teach people not to do that. You know, it shouldn't be, the focus shouldn't be on stopping it entirely. And I mean, I feel like that applies to any number of subjects too. I feel like that could apply to any number of issues that we are trying to eradicate that seem almost impossible to eradicate. And I mean, you can just come up with them yourself because there's many of them and they're obvious. 
But anytime society is trying to stop a certain behavior outright, it has a very difficult time understanding the natural function of that behavior. And it tends to see it as inherently evil or bad. And it's like you have to see this on a spectrum. Not everything has a spectrum. It is effective sometimes just to be able to say something is good or bad, black or white, evil or holy, you know, whatever way you want to put it. But there is a spectrum to so many of these things, especially behaviors that we have to figure out as people. Because it's like the anti-bullying movement, you know, it's going to reach a point where like there's going to be no kids left who even experienced real bullying to begin with. I mean, there will be, but still, there's going to be a lot of kids who never even go through the normal initiation of being mocked, of being pranked. And you have to be careful about who you prank and how you prank them. But we really need a a system where we can prank people. But what we have now is the internet where it's way too easy to maliciously prank somebody online. And we saw that immediately. It's way too easy for some loner to say whatever they want to somebody. You know, to say, kill yourself. To say, oh, you're, because you're gay and fat, you should die. And to say that to somebody every day. You know, nobody should be doing that. And we should teach people not to do that. But we should also live in a world, like this is my ideal, is that we will live in a world where that just bounces off people. Rather than even having to eradicate that, which might be impossible too, like rather than eradicating cruel bullying even, or trying to, just making it so that people are resilient enough to deal with that. But the problem is kids are so, they're developing. They're so insecure about themselves, about their peers, that it's hard to imagine a world where somebody says, kill yourself because you're gay and fat. And that won't impact that person very, very deeply. But in an ideal world, that would just bounce off them. And that would actually stop the cruelty. Because if cruel bully, you know, if a cruel bully, a CB, if a CB found that what he was saying didn't have an impact, he would stop. You know, that's kind of a, a, cla- a, a cliche. I was going to say a platitude or a cliche. It's a platitude. No, it's a a cliche. It's kind of a platitude you hear repeated, which is that like, if you don't show them, if if, if you don't, basically, if you don't give them the satisfaction, you know, if you don't give in, if you don't, if you don't let them know that it's getting to you, they'll stop. There's a lot of truth to that. You know, and honestly, that worked in my favor. I mean, I I guess I worry sometimes that talking about this subject makes it sound like I was some terrible bully my entire childhood, and I'm just trying to justify it or make it sound like bullying is a, it's just a foundation of the American childhood experience. You know, when the reality is, was people, people dished it out to me just as much. You know, I wasn't just, I, I truly wasn't some menace growing up. I just recall that everybody was sort of dishing it and taking it, and that was just the kind of world you live in, and a lot of it was psychological. But I find it very interesting, and I do worry that we're going to overcompensate, because it's bad enough that we can't make prank phone calls anymore, not just because it was so fun to do, but because, you know, 
we learn less about each other through these things. Because, you know, for me, part of being a boy was seeing who was up to the task. Who's going to stay behind, you know, if you're cornered with another kid, like you're boys and not even the toughest kids. Like we were certainly not from a tough area or anything like that, but it's like, you do learn about your peers. Like it's like someone who says, Oh, you know, paintballs, a simulation, a simulation of violence, paintballs, a, a simulation of violence. I don't want anybody to play paintball. It hurts. Yeah. But if you're playing paintball as a kid, and you're stuck behind a corner, you're trapped with a friend. It's amazing to see how they handle that. Like, it's amazing to see, like, because most of my good friends, I believe, would have stayed with me right there. I can't imagine any of my good friends just putting their hands up. And I think that's why we were friends, you know, through thick and thin and, you know, bad and good. I think that's why, like, we were ultimately friends is because there was a certain willingness to, first of all, to to do that. Like I said, like none of my friends were the sort of kids who ran to mom. And we all had moms who were really involved in our lives. You know, we had parents who love us as they say. But, you know, even then though, we weren't the types of kids who went to mom. Like when I got in a fight with one of my friends, which happened, we would just keep it between each other and it would either resolve itself or it wouldn't. But I never remember any of my, I I do remember one fairly good friend of mine like going to his mom one day but that was an exception but when it came to like disputes between the boys I do feel lucky or that somehow I I knew what I was doing or my friends knew what they were doing to where you know we didn't just go run to mom unless it was something very very serious you know like somebody was hurt and I don't remember that even happening but you know I think that some of these you know young men in particular, like need to find ways to do that with each other. They need to know who is going to be a good paintball team member. They need to know, you know, who can handle a joke, but also who doesn't take things too far. Cause that happened to us. Like that, that happened to my group of friends in like sixth grade where there was a kid who was hanging out with us and he just took everything too far and we ostracized him for it. But guess what he did? He acted, he, he would carry knives around And he would like, even though he had never done anything to animals, he would joke about animal cruelty, which was just wrong crowd, man. And we ended up ostracizing him because he was just one of those kids where like he was just taking it too far. And, you know, and and you could sense that, that he didn't have the, you know, while we all enjoyed being assholes, you could just tell that he, he was just taking it too far. And I don't think he ever even did anything that bad. You know, I think he actually kind of, he went, he ended up moving away, but last I heard he, he had kind of mellowed out, but still like we didn't even want to joke about that stuff. You know, we weren't just trying to be the worst human beings alive. You know, we actually, so it's like when he crossed a certain line, we ended up ostracizing him and we didn't bully him. We didn't attack him. If he would, sh- it was mean because he, if he would like come up to us, we would walk away. So it was a very cold thing that we did. But what else are you going to do? You know, what else are you going to do? Like, I mean, we're little kids. We don't know how to, we don't know what we're doing. We just didn't want to be around him anymore. He ended up going to the teacher and the principal and telling them that basically we humiliated him. I mean, like basically, I mean, I don't even know what the charge was. 
I don't even know what we were being accused of. Of we, I mean, we it was seriously as simple as we didn't want to be his friends anymore. But he ended up telling the teacher and the principal, and we had to meet with the teacher and the principal one by one, and they chastised us. They chastised us. Like, they made it out like we were the bad guys. And I told them. I said, like, he would talk about doing things to animals. You know, he would joke about things that we didn't consider appropriate. And I don't remember if anything came of it, but it was like one of those things where, like, the principal, like, she acted, she she played good cop while my teacher played bad cop. And the, the principal took me out to the playground and, like, walked around with me very slowly asking me questions like I was disturbed or something. And it's like, that kid was saying really fucked up shit that crossed the line with us. And that's basically what I said to her, like as well as I could have at the time. And we didn't end up getting any kind of punishment, but they made us write a freaking apology letter to the kid and then meet with him. We had, we each had to write apology letters for ostracizing him. And then we had to meet with him. And he told us like, I read the letters. They were very nice. Thank you. Like, what are you doing to us? Now I want to kill him. Before, I just didn't want anything to do with him. But he he snitched over that. And, like, it just shows me that he didn't understand. You know, he didn't understand that, like, he wasn't... He must not have understood why we didn't want anything to do with him. But it was like he crossed a line. And so kids have that built in. It's not like... Like, I think people have this idea that young men, especially boys... Like, they're incredibly susceptible. Like, if they, regardless of their background or the home they come from, if another boy escalates the conversation or the activity, they're all just going to do it. Oh, if, if one of the football players starts raping a, a passed out girl, they're all just going to do it. A certain sort of guy does, and, you know, absolutely that happens. But it, it's not something where, like, every single guy is just waiting for somebody to escalate the situation and they all go along with it. That happens especially if a very like popular or charismatic person initiates it. But my experience was, is that while we are all willing to be daring, we are all willing to break the rules, sometimes in a bad way. Like sometimes we would cross a line, like that night where my friend said all that shit to the girl online. You know, while that stuff would happen, while there'd be situations where we'd do shitty things, like the, like the time that I prank called the girl with my friend and said, quotes from scream that scared her you know it's like you do things like that but but beyond that it's not like you're just waiting for somebody to suggest something horrible you realize like what's acceptable and what's not and you realize also like where you screw up because you know after we after uh like prank calling that girl i realized i never wanted to do that again after i did that i never did another call like that i never called a girl i never called anybody and said anything remotely threatening because I realized that sucked. I thought we were just kidding around. I saw that in a movie. I blamed the movie. Scream should be banned. But no, it's a situation where it's like, oh yeah, you know, I fucked up. Fortunately, it wasn't too bad. You know, that's what I say on here over and over again about breaking rules, where it's like, you sometimes don't understand the value of a rule until you break it. And the same is true for just boundaries in general. Because, I mean, there are some rules that you can't break. Like, you can't break thou shalt not kill. 
Like, yeah, there might be a situation where it's it's your life or their life or you're saving somebody. There are obviously contexts where having to kill somebody, well, that, that just says it all, having to kill somebody. When you're in a situation where really your only way out is to kill, like obviously that's an exception. But it's like in just your day-to-day life, the average person's life, you don't need to break that rule to understand its value. You don't need to kill somebody to understand why you shouldn't kill somebody. But other rules, you kind of do have to experience that. And the less you understand a rule, the more you might need to test it in that way. And I think pranking, I think bullying, I think joking, I think all of those are great ways of dealing with that. And it does disturb me when I see that it becomes harder and harder to do that. Because just seeing the transition between prank calls to internet pranks, internet pranks became immediately darker. They became immediately more sinister. You know, they seem to have bothered people a lot more deeply. Like, I don't remember people getting too upset over prank calls. Like, sometimes somebody would lose it. But I don't, aside from like somebody, like if you didn't, basically if you didn't overstep your bounds, like if you didn't threaten somebody or make them feel unsafe, prank calls were fairly harmless. They were just kind of an annoyance. But it seems like as soon as people were able to start doing internet pranks, they became immediately darker. You know, they became more hidden. You know, so that, that was a transition that I just witnessed in my lifetime. And I honestly wish you still could prank call people because it was this act of kind of, you were on the spot, like I said. Like you weren't in front of a computer, you weren't in front of a screen. Whatever you said would directly impact, you know, the route that this conversation took, how the person responded. It was just, it was an incredible thing. And it was also a way of kind of testing your own will, (laughs) you know? Like, can I do this? Am I willing to call this person and say this? And can I riff? Can I riff on this too? Like if they start bantering back to me, can I kind of come up with funny stuff? And I feel like that's a, a trait that even friends that I didn't know in high school, like even friends that I met in adulthood, I can tell that pranking played a pretty big role in their life as well. Because like my friend Miles, for example, like the email address that he had when I met him that he's had for many years he told me that it comes from a prank phone call he made where like he used this very like weird esoteric sounding name that is just really funny. Like even though I wasn't there, I could immediately understand the tone. Um, But when I met him, he was like, oh yeah, my email address comes from a prank phone call that I made when I was much younger. And I'm like, of course, of course. It's like a ritual, you know, it's an initiation. And that it's so attractive. That's the thing. It's just like, like to teenage boys, it was so attractive. But like I was getting at earlier, I don't really know why it wasn't as attractive to teenage girls. I guess maybe it was harder. Maybe they're just not as aggressive. Because, I mean, I do think it kind of it plays into the idea that men are more outwardly aggressive while women are more inwardly aggressive. Because prank phone calling was aggressive. You know, even if what you were saying wasn't mean-spirited or aggressive itself, the simple act of doing that is an aggressive act. Like you were dialing a phone that will go to somebody's house and they have to answer it 
just so that you can fuck with them. That's an aggressive act, but a fun one. But the internet, you could be far more insidious. You know, it was more subtle. And you do notice that, like, women seem to have picked the, up the slack as soon as they had the internet. And now we're in a climate where that's really the only option. You know, really one of our only options with, with this campaign against bullying and everything, pretty much all kids are forced to take that route. And I don't think that's good for us. I don't think it's good for us to be doing our pranks on computers because it kind of takes out the human element too. Because a lot of earlier pranks were very human. They were very organic. They were with people you knew. They involved, you would hear their voice or you would be there with them. You know, because you would do pranks with people as well at parties. And sometimes they were stupid. Like I still think about like a, a seventh, like one of the first boy girl birthday parties I went to it was probably in sixth, uh, seventh grade. We watched it. I was just talking about how the only two times I've ever seen that movie was at the seventh, the first, like one of the first big boy girl parties in seventh grade. And then watching it after high school with those Jamaican neighbors that my friend had, but we watched it at this boy girl party. And while we were watching it, like I got the idea or somebody got the idea, but I ended up doing it where I drew a clown face on a white balloon. And there's a scene where I think like its head comes out of a sink. The the clown's head comes out of a sink or something as a balloon. And then it pops. So I had the idea of like drawing this clown face on a balloon sticking it in the toilet with face up so that when somebody opened the the lid to the toilet, they would just see this clown face. Of course I was doing it so that a girl would find it. Of course. Like, of course the entire idea of the prank, because the thing is, it was one of those things where we were watching it and all of the girls were like shrieking. Like they were totally playing up their girlhood. You know, they were, they were watching it and they were all like scared, but it was very performative, but so fun. That was so fun. But I drew this clown face because I was like, oh, one of these girls who's like really playing up the the scared girl vibe. You know, she's going to open this and see a clown face. And sure enough, that's what happened. I mean, it, it ended up being not nearly what I expected. Like a girl pretended to be scared by the clown face. I should have married her. Whoever, whichever girl that was, I should have married her. The girl who opened the toilet lid and saw the clown that I drew on a balloon. I mean, I think even that night, we like we were in a pranking mood. That night, we all stayed at that house. Like all the boys stayed the night, and we convinced we we convinced the little mayor. You know what? This is where he showed his he showed himself. You know, I don't want this. To, this is a good. I'm glad that this went in this direction because it shows that he was capable under the right circumstances. And we didn't typically do gross stuff, but there was this construction zone down the street from where we were staying. And somebody came up with the idea of shitting in a bag and they let, cause there was like a, like one of those cat, like, whatever you call them, like a, like a tractor. I can't remember what you call it. Like a, uh, like a piece of construction equipment that you drive. I think those are called like caterpillars or cats, one of those, but they just left it at the construction site and they didn't expect anybody to vandalize it or anything. Like, I, you know, it, that wasn't common in that community. But one of us came up with the idea, somebody came up with the idea of like shitting in a bag and then smearing it on the seat 
of this construction equipment, like where a guy is going to have to sit. And so like, and I mean, this is not typical of my friends growing up. Like we weren't the kind of kids who like did a lot of body stuff around each other, even for fun, humor stuff. But somebody was like, Hey, does somebody have to shit? And the little mayor was like, I kind of (laughs) do. And it was like a, it was like a grocery store plastic bag with handles on each side. And he like, he like pulled his pants down and we like, not all the way down, but like just the ass, the ass. He pulled his pants down, like just the ass. So like the front of his pants were still covering him. And then he like put the bag up. He like pulled the the handles of the bag up on each side of his like hips. So that like the bag was just like around his ass. And then he started like, excuse me, I'm very sorry to be telling this story, but it's important. Um, And he started straining. And then somebody was like, what are you doing? Like go in the bathroom and do that. And so like, and somebody like went with him. Because, like, this was a group operation to, like, smear shit on this construction equipment, it became this group operation where, like, somebody, like, went with him into the bathroom. It was just, like, it was, like, every, it was, like, partner up, you know? Like, it's the buddy system. It was just really weird because, <laughs> like I said, like, like, nobody was like this. Like, none of these kids were like this. Like, nobody was comfortable being seen naked around each other. You know, this wasn't a locker room vibe or anything. And so eventually he was able to get something out and then we were just like yeah like like this big mob of us it's the middle of the night this big mob of us like somebody grabbed the bag like another kid i think it was my friend my my friend nick i think he grabbed the bag and like held it up and like we were like it was like a trophy because we knew because we had what we needed to do this prank and we like ran down the street like this, like it was like triumph, like before we'd even done it, it was triumph. And then we got there and then like somebody was like, oh, we got to put it on the seat. And my friend who was holding the bag was like, I'm not going to do that. That's two hands on. Like he's willing to hold the bag, but he's like, I'm not going to do that. And so like, of course, like somebody was like, well, well the little mayor should do it since, since it's the little mayor's shit in the bag. He should be the one to do it. And I don't remember, like, like we all kind of got, we were all kind of like half running away already. They did do it. So, like, I don't know the extent. I don't know, but they did it. And that's all you need. That's the funny thing, though, is like w- when you're that age, you don't care about doing the most thorough job. You don't care about like doing a quality prank. Sometimes it's just the fact that you did it. And you'll pat yourself on the back and be like, we did it. Yeah. You know, a a lot of it's not even about doing it effectively. And I think in this case, like they got shit on the construction equipment seat. I know that whether they smeared it, whether what they did, either way, somebody who worked at that construction site had to deal with human shit on their equipment, on the seat. So, you know, that's crossing the line. That's, That's a bad thing to do. I I have mixed feelings on that one though. You know, I do have mixed feelings on that cuz yeah, like if you're a construction guy and like you get to work and you're like there's something nasty on the seat and like if he doesn't see it and sits in it, you know, it's it's a it's a bad thing to do to somebody. It doesn't feel that bad though. It just that that seems even though it's disgusting, it feels like we inconvenience somebody more than it does. I mean, yeah, it's more than an inconvenience. That's disgusting.
There's no justification. But I don't know. Somehow, I don't know. Telling that story, it somehow doesn't seem as bad as like threatening somebody on a prank phone call. I guess like it doesn't seem psychologically bad. It's just gross. But that's it, though. And the thing is, too, there were a million other things we did. When I look back, I'm like, I'm so glad we were doing stuff all the time like that. And so I think you have to be aware of that spectrum, and you know, and dads can be good at that. Like sometimes you'd have a friend's dad who was more of a prankster than another. Like I had one friend's dad who was quite a prankster. And so like older people, they, they would kind of like communicate to you too, like what's acceptable, like what the rules of the game are. And there was a guy like my friend's uncle was in a wheelchair with some severe, like he couldn't talk. He had MS, I think. And so we had this uncle who was in a, a like a, a high-powered wheelchair. He could barely move his arms. His chin was like locked. Like his, his face was locked in a position where he had like a double chin turned to the side at all times. I guess that might be MS, but he, he couldn't talk. He could say a couple words that he would just repeat, but he was intelligent. Like he still had all the intelligence. His, his body couldn't allow him to function though. But it was like his awareness and everything was still there. And that was very interesting as a kid because it was like you see a guy like that and you know he's not quote-unquote retarded because you, you can tell that he's seeing everything and you can tell that he's hyper-aware. And guess what? He was a prankster. It was amazing. He One time we were over at his house and because uh, he was ta- his parents, my friend's grandparents took care of this guy, his uncle, and he took my friend's dad's jacket when nobody was looking and he hid it because he had a special wheelchair for going to the bathroom and it had kind of like a, almost like a toilet built into it. Like if you've ever used a trailer, how it has like the way a trailer toilet works where it's not like the toilet in your house. It's kind of like this little makeshift toilet. It, it had this chair that had like this kind of toilet built into it and it had a lid on it and stuff. And he put the, I swear this isn't as gross as the last story, but he, he ended up putting my friend's dad's jacket into the bowl of that toilet. And it was clean. Like they kept it clean when he wasn't using it. I mean, I, it's still disgusting. But still, he like we were getting ready to go. And my friend's dad was like, where's my jacket? 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 And uh, he was looking for his jacket. And then the, the guy in the wheelchair, the uncle, who's the brother of my friend's dad, he was just, you could tell he was just getting a kick out of it. He was laughing. And so they kind of figured out, oh, Mike, Uncle Mike did something. Uncle Mike, Uncle Mike did something with your jacket. And uh, sure enough, he had hid his jacket in his toilet as a prank. And so it's like even having severe MS, not being able to speak, not being able to function, it was still essential that he prank his brother. And in fact, that was like his primary form of communication because he couldn't talk. You couldn't have a conversation with him, but he could understand what you were saying. And he would also do things like because I I knew this family very well. I spent a lot of time with all of them, you know, during early years of my life. And there was when when we would go over to visit this guy. He would also like look at my friend's dad and with his hand was like very bent up. It was very like wrapped up and bent up. And he would kind of like do this thing where he would like stroke at his chin and laugh. And it meant you're getting old. Like 
and he would kind of mutter something. And what he was saying was he was making fun of the fact that my friend's dad was getting older, like he was getting gray hairs in his beard. And so, but he had this very specific way where he would stroke his chin and kind of laugh and like, and like make a noise. And it meant you're getting old. So he would like break people's balls in the same way that anybody would. He would prank people just as any guy would. But it's interesting that he had this debilitating condition that kept him unable to speak, unable to do more than move his like, you know, like people say like T-Rex arms. It was like that. You know, he had like these little bent up arms, but he would do like he was operating at all of his capacity and he used that to prank his brother and to make fun of him for getting old. That's fucking amazing. That is fucking beautiful. That is the way I'm going to close this episode to show you why pranking is essential and why giving each other a hard time is essential. And we should instead focus on the boundaries of that. Not becoming cruel, not going too far, but also it's not a disaster if you do go a little bit too far because that's how you figure out what too far is. So I think my friend's uncle doing those exact things in his condition, I can't think of better evidence than that, that this is just in us and we need to do it. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children